I first met Meg Lohman, known to many as Canopy Meg, at the opening of the Canopy Walk at the Vermont Institute of Natural Science in Queechee, Vermont in 2019. It was after doing an interview for Nature Revisited that Meg mentioned she was thinking of writing a book about her experiences in the world's rainforests and her research of trees. It wasn't until this spring that I learned that Meg had finished writing her book and that the Arbornaut was scheduled for publication on August 11th. The Arbornaut is a story of a lifelong love of nature, science, and above all, trees. Meg Lohman has spent a lifetime going about the business of trying to save the world's trees and rainforests and to make us aware of the importance that these ecosystems have on our planet and our lives. I contacted Meg to see if she would join me again on Nature Revisited and this time share with us her remarkable career and the lifetime of research that has taken her all over the world and to share with us her wonderful journey to the treetops, to the eighth continent, and to becoming the first Arbornaut. So let's get right to it. Okay, that sounds wonderful. I loved your book. I really did. And I'm very excited about putting this podcast together. Let's start with what are some of the memories you have of growing up in New York State? And where did your passion for trees really originate? When I grew up, there were no computers, no cell phones, and our small rural town in upstate New York didn't even have a major movie theater or anything, so I did play outdoors a lot, and I loved nature. I was kind of shy, but trees did not need me to talk to them, and so I became pretty much of a nature nut, and that early outdoor play inspired me to pursue it as a career. I made little forts with my friends. I collected things. My parents were kind enough to stop the car so I could pick wildflowers along the roadside. I had a rock collection, a snakeskin collection, a twig collection, or all sorts of things. So I was an avid collector from a young age. Most of it went under the bed, and my poor mom had to put mouse traps there occasionally because they also got attracted to my collection. So I was a really, you know, young amateur naturalist at quite the age of three, I think, and it never left me. So when did you climb your first tree? Probably at age four, and again, very uh, casually, none of the fancy equipment that's available today, but like most kids who did play outside in the backyard, we had some really great branches that we loved, and some fun tree forts along the way with my best friend, Betsy. And so there you have it. I guess I was an Arbornaut before I knew the word Arbornaut. You finished high school and you decided to go into the sciences, particularly your love for nature. Talk to us about the difficulties that you had 
as a woman pursuing your love of nature and trees? First of all, I wanted to go to a college that had a forest. That was how much I loved trees at the age of 18. And so I did indeed end up going to Williams College because they boasted in the application brochures about having their own research forest. It wasn't the only one, but it seemed very rural and in the middle of the woods, so that was a good thing. What I didn't realize was that I was the second class of women. It was all male up until the year before I started to attend, and that did increase the challenges, I think, as a woman wanting to do science. I started out with some geology classes, thinking it would be great to understand the substrate where my trees grew, and I wasn't very welcome in some of those classes by professors who were very, very used to having just male classes. And I quickly switched to biology, and they were mostly pre-med, which wasn't perfect either, but I did end up getting a chance to work in my beloved forest and studying trees for my thesis as an undergraduate. It is very true, uh, as you indicated in your question, that there weren't too many women in science. I actually had no female professors, which was disappointing, and I went on to graduate school and was in the minority most of the way. Even a lot of my expeditions in subsequent years as a field biologist were predominantly male. So it's been for me a great passion to get more girls involved in science. Is it getting better in the scientific world for for women and minorities? I think it's improving for diversity in science, which is the good news. Obviously, I and many other people are very attuned to that issue. I think we still have what I might call the tall poppy syndrome, where it's tricky sometimes for women or minorities to advance and do really well, and sometimes there's a little bit of kickback or feedbacks from people saying they're doing too well. So I've been aware of that, and I think women need to help women. I think everyone needs to help those who may have come with, you know, a little bit of extra challenge along the way and make sure they do succeed. So I think it's time to have our wits about us and not be complacent, but um, hopefully we will get there and it's exciting for the next generation to perhaps make a little bit uh, of a difference in terms of creating equity. So how did you get the nickname Canopy Meg? <laughs> and, and what inspired you to write the book? Canopy Meg was given to me by fifth and sixth graders, if you can believe it, when I had the wonderful privilege of working with Bob Ballard of Titanic fame on a distance learning program for middle schools. This program was called the Jason Project, and in the 1990s, Bob and I broadcast virtually from rainforests as well as from marine habitats to kids around the country and around the world. It was just a fantastic pioneering experience to introduce the virtual expedition idea, but it was also a big thrill to work with Bob, who was a great science communicator. During that time, a lot of kids texted us and emailed us from their classrooms, and so lo and behold, the nickname of Canopy Meg arose, and that's where I got it. So I thought, why don't I use that for my website? Why don't I use that for my email, et cetera, et cetera? And obviously, 
over all those years of different misadventures, as I call them, uh, I amassed a lot of stories myself and uh, thought maybe that would be a good way to write a book that encourages girls to go into science by sharing some of my stories and hopefully sharing ideas that can help them become better women scientists than I was with all of my struggles along the way. That's one of the things I really liked about your book, is that you are a very natural storyteller. When did you first think about writing the book? I kept journals for most of my career, and partly because I was usually the lone woman in a pup tent somewhere out in the rainforest or up on a slope. And so that was a good activity before I went to bed at night. And also it helped me hone in my five senses to be more aware of nature by writing about it every time I was in the field. So with all of those journals, I was pretty easily able to create the book. It was suggested to me, you should write, you know, your stories in a book and you should share it with other girls as well as boys who might be interested in science and you should also share your enthusiasm for conserving trees. So what is an Arbornaut? Aha, great question. An Arbornaut, similar to an astronaut who explores outer space, well, an Arbornaut explores the tops of trees. So it has that root word in Latin for tree, arbor, and, you know, the N-A-U-T ending, just as do some other professions. And so that is technically what my occupation is, although many other people might call me a forest conservation biologist as well. Are their numbers growing? Yes, I'm happy to say they are. I guess I was one of a handful of the first few, believe it or not, as long ago as 1979 when I first welded a slingshot and sewed my own harness in Australia. But since then, I have absolutely and aggressively trained every student that I could find that was interested in trees to climb and ask questions about the canopy. And so the world is uh, seeing a wonderful surge of canopy scientists. The first conference that I hosted in 1994 had about 250 scientists, and one, uh, I think the eighth or ninth that we hosted in India a few years back had closer to 800 scientists. So that is good news, but it's still not enough to really cover the importance value of forests and the incredible need to study what lives up there. Do you know that we estimate 50% of the world's biodiversity on land lives in the treetops, yet we probably Probably know less than 10% of it. So there's a lot of room for more arbor nuts. What is and where is the eighth continent? <laughs> and, and who coined that phrase? Uh, that phrase was coined by E.O. Wilson, and a number of us picked up on it and have used it over the years with great delight. Basically, right over our heads is this extraordinary uncharted territory called the Canopy, where so many things live and pollinate and eat or be eaten. And all of a sudden, once we discovered that, we felt that we were almost like explorers of a new continent. So that's where it arose. What is one of the biggest surprises that nature has shown you? I think I was 
absolutely blown away by the fact that almost half of the biodiversity on the land part of our planet lived at the tops of trees and nobody ever saw it for 200 years. When you think about foresters doing what they did and walking through the woods and maybe only seeing the tops of trees when they cut it down, it's extraordinary and it's a reminder that great and wonderful discoveries can really be made in your own backyard. And we still have so much to learn from Mother Nature because she's full of those surprises. And so I say to kids all the time, just look, you know, smell, see, uh, taste, you know, use your five senses and hopefully you'll make some new discoveries too. What are some of the important things, the really important things that trees tell us and teach us? Sure. Oh, my gosh. Trees, of course, keep us alive, literally, absolutely. So we cannot live on this earth if the trees disappear, and they are disappearing in great numbers, which is very scary and a whole other subject here. But what trees do for us is, number one, of course, produce oxygen and circulate gases that are important in our atmosphere. Number two, they cleanse fresh water through their beautiful foliage. They can take toxic water and cleanse it into fresh water. They store carbon in their trunks, which is a huge asset now that we pollute the atmosphere with carbon dioxide in so many cases. Their roots conserve the soil and keep it from being uh, taken downstream and out into the oceans in cases where floods occur. They give us a home for some 50% of that land-based biodiversity, which I mentioned earlier. They provide us with incredible foods, oranges, cherries, chocolate, oh my gosh, all kinds of important things to eat. They absolutely provide us with timber, as we well know, and that can be very sustainably harvested with care. They provide us with other materials, fabrics, ropes, things that we use in our everyday lives. And something that's unappreciated is that they provide a spiritual heritage to some 2 billion plus people on the planet in Asia, in India, in Africa. So many cultures use forests as their spiritual sanctuary, as their sacred place, as their center for worship. So all kinds of things are coming from our trees and we need them desperately and we aren't being quite as vigilant as we should be in taking care of the bigger trees that are the, you know, the parent trees, the grandfathers, the senior citizens in this community we call forest. And then do you have a sense of the sacred when you're among the trees? I always feel that the trees are my spiritual place. I think I worship in the trees. I worship the trees themselves, and they in turn feed me. I've often wondered if it isn't the best oxygen in the world amongst many other privileges to be in a forest. So, yes, the answer is the trees are incredibly spiritual and I think for anybody who can take to nature on occasion, it's an honor, it's a privilege, and it's something really, really important to our good health. So I would say the trees and spirituality are very closely intertwined. A lot of people, when they think of forests, or particularly the rainforest, they think of the Amazon. Where else on this planet are all the other rainforests? Sure. Great question. Well, the Amazon is the largest 
attractive rainforest. So when people think of the Amazon first, they probably are accurate in many ways, but there are three major rainforest areas in the world. One is centered around the African flora and fauna, and the other is centered around the Southeast Asian. They sometimes call it the Australo-Asian because it includes Australia as well. So all of those three areas, and then the neotropics or the Central South American tropics are the third site. They each have a different evolution of different types of plants and animals and slightly different conditions, but obviously by definition rainforests have high rain and are usually, in the case of tropical rainforests, located uh, within a close range of the equator. So what are some of the interesting inhabitants that you have discovered while studying these tree canopies? First of all, millions and millions of beetles. You just have to love insects if you become a field biologist in any part of nature, I believe. It's just extraordinary, the colors and shapes and sizes of fabulous pollinators and herbivores, those insects that eat leaves, which I really focus in on for my own research, and the many, many other cool kinds of insects that are up there. Um, so you just really do need to stop squishing those bugs in your backyard and start to learn how important they are for keeping our planet healthy. Some people call them the glue of the ecosystem in actual fact. Obviously, in addition to that, there are all kinds of cool things that feed on my subject matter, which is leaves. Um, you can look at sloths. If you go down to South America, you can study koalas. If you go over to Australia, you can focus in on all kinds of extraordinary birds, most of which nest in treetops, not on the forest floor, although there are exceptions, but of course. And even some of those microscopic things are totally cool. I've developed a passion later in life for something called the water bear or tardigrades is their uh, scientific classification. And they are absolutely microscopic, but so cool. And maybe the commonest thing in the canopy because they live in drops of water in the thousands. You spent a whole lot of time in the canopies before you discovered canopy walks. Talk to us about how you first started thinking about that and how that sort of came about. I actually started climbing trees in 1979 using equipment that I had designed and made myself, which is probably a little bit dangerous to others who may not want to use things that I had sewed or slingshots that I had welded. Uh, so it came to pass that I got a grant from Earthwatch, which is a fabulous organization that helps scientists get volunteers in the field. And for me, counting insects and leaves, it was fantastic. They have an extra 20 sets of eyeballs and hands working side by side with me. But I could not take 20 people up on a rope. Obviously, they would all fall and it would become a disaster. So in thinking that through, I was also working part-time at an eco-tourist lodge in Queensland. And literally one night on the back of a napkin as we drank some gorgeous Australian red wine, the lodge owner and I kind of had a little light bulb go on in our heads. And we said, gosh, what if we had a trail through the treetops instead of Meg teaching all these people to climb, which 
which can be a little dangerous. What if we made something that was on poles and allowed the people to be up there safely counting all the bugs? And so lo and behold, uh, we got some local engineers and volunteers that built this first ever canopy walkway in South Queensland. And right on the heels of that, another one was constructed over in Malaysia in even more dense tropical rainforest. So all of a sudden, there were two fantastic ecotourism operations going on, and I followed up by coming back to the States a year later and actually built the first one in North America on the Williams College Research Forest, that is. And so that was kind of exciting to come full circle from my thesis trees of my student days to having a walkway exist in the Massachusetts Temperate Forest, which was a very different type of operation from what we had in the tropics. So let's go back a little bit to some of the other forest in the world. Um, one of the things that I really learned in your book is that you actually have studied and researched all around the globe. So can we just talk a little bit about some of the places that you have been, like Africa, India, Malaysia, Ethiopia, and how important those forests are and what you have learned about them? I always thought that I would have to be a stewardess if I wanted to travel the world. It never dawned on me that scientists become international in their scope. But I think the more that I studied canopies and became a specialist, the more countries in different forests had issues that required experts to come and work with them. So it did lead to quite a global career. And over the years, I think the secret to success in working in some of these different countries was always local friendships and trust. It had nothing to do with the quality of the equipment or the technology or the science, but it always had to do with building up local trust. So in many cases, such as Ethiopia, I had the friendship and ear of one of the few Ethiopian forest biologists, and together we have worked for over a decade on saving their forests and making discoveries in their forests. Um, similarly, in Malaysia, I had the trust and friendship of a corporate group that ended up funding a canopy walkway and wanted to host and fund researchers there. So it was a wonderful, wonderful partnership between their group and myself and then extended out to many of my colleagues over the years. Similarly, in India, I had a Fulbright there and helped set up Canopy Research with some young scientists in uh, Bangalore, and they've become lifelong family and friends. So we can, you know, work together and different questions and forests in India get addressed. So I guess it's just almost like building a wall, but each stone represents those people and friendships that have developed in these different countries to make make sure the work has follow-through and is sustainable. Can you kind of explain to us how these other rainforests that are in places like Africa and India and Malaysia, how important they are, just as important as the Amazon rainforest? Absolutely. Look, every rainforest in the world is critical, and we are seeing a huge decline in our forests, as we all know. The 
Earth does not get oxygen from the Amazon alone, and it certainly doesn't it doesn't house all the biodiversity on the Earth. The animals in India are significantly different from the animals in the Amazon, and similarly, the plants and animals in Australia are extremely different from the plants and animals in the rainforests of Costa Rica. So we do have a stewardship for all these forests that is so critical. And right now, I think people probably are aware that over the last 12 months, we saw amazing and disastrous fires in the Amazon, in Australia, even in the forests of California, in Siberia. So we've not only been losing trees to clear cutting and agriculture, but we're now losing trees to fires and the warmer, drier climates that are being fostered by human activities, which is just really devastating to our trees. And Even though it's great to plant trees, nothing substitutes for a mature tree. Sloth cannot live in a sapling, and most of these diverse organisms will not resettle in a little plantation of seedlings. We need these mature big trees to house the biodiversity, store the carbon, produce the oxygen, and filter the water. And sometimes that takes a thousand years in the case of a tropical rainforest to restore. And maybe it's not even possible to restore it, which is the really scary thing. So what are some of the other ways that you are trying to get people interested in the care and the preservation of the world's forests? And how do we save our forests? First of all, we do need to educate everyone. It's amazing how few people learn in business school, for example, that a tree is almost like a monetary product and we need to take good care of it because it's so economically important to our health. So we have to start young. I think we need to educate kids. We need to educate businessmen. We need to educate government officials. Secondly, when you live in a westernized country like the U.S. that's quite wealthy, we need to also be awfully careful about what we purchase and not use our buying power to cause the clearing of the Amazon and to cause the loss of trees in uh, Malaysia because they're planting oil palm plantations to put in your shampoo or your soap or your upholstery. So we do have to be much more vigilant about what we consume and make sure that it's not something that has caused the rainforest to become cleared. And thirdly, we just have to have a really strong voice to make sure that we can provide some economic incentives not to log. One of the things I'm trying to do with my canopy walkways is develop ecotourism in some of these countries, and that will offset the impetus to log the forests if we can provide income to local people as bird guides, as boat drivers, as chefs, as ecotourist lodge operators. I have a whole new program called Mission Green, which proposes to build canopy walkways in 10 of the most urgently Um, needed to be conserved forests, we have to look at the forests that are the most important to save, that are the most endangered, and try to save those first. And I'm really hoping with my program called Mission Green that we can achieve that aim and hire women and families in these local areas and then in turn uh, fund researchers, young students, to go there and make discoveries before it's too late. For those people who aren't really familiar with the term, the citizen scientist. Talk a little bit about what is a citizen scientist and how are they making a difference? 
Over the past decade or so, a lot of scientists have engaged the public in their research, starting with my Earthwatch grants in Australia way back in the 1980s, and it's allowed me to double and triple the amount of data that I can collect. And with the right type of design and question, citizen scientists can collect accurate data. So one of the things I've been doing is taking a citizen scientist group to the Amazon every July for about 25 years. They have helped me measure herbivory. They have helped me find the defoliators in the canopy. They have helped me count the bugs eating the leaves, all kinds of amazing things that I never could have done by myself. So the world of citizen science is exploding in a good way because it gets folks into the rainforest and it collects more data and it helps everybody understand the importance of the forest and develop a love for the forest, which is also something that's invaluable to our culture. So talk a little bit about the Amazon Conservatory for Tropical Studies, otherwise known as ACTS, and your involvement with that canopy walk. Well, that was one of the places that Bob Ballard and I took the Jason Project way back in 19, gosh, 1998, I think. Um, it's a very uh, simple research lab with an extraordinary canopy walkway that a number of my colleagues who are engineers and arborists maintain, and it's operated by an ecotourist lodge with the exact model that I just described. In fact, we're hoping to ramp it up in the next couple years through funds by Mission Green to hire more local people to have exemplary environmental education programs for visitors. And hopefully, American families will say, let's go there for graduation instead of Disney World. We would love to have American families and students think of ecotourism and a canopy walkway as a destination for a well-earned vacation instead of a lot of the artificial things that we develop around here. So we're hopeful that ACTS might become one of those exemplary places where the Amazon is conserved, the local indigenous people are employed, and the scientific research is exciting and vibrant and very, very active. I'm really excited about my new program called Mission Green, which is the last chapter of the book. Obviously, it would be terrible to end a book saying the world is coming to an end, the rainforests are in trouble, what can we do about it? It would not be kind to any young people. And as a mom, I guess I have to be optimistic in my hope for the future. So by launching this new program called Mission Green, I truly hope we can conserve some of these most important forests. It's almost like saving a library of rare books. We're trying to save these genetic libraries of extraordinary species before they disappear and in turn giving a sustainable income to local people uh, through the process of developing these walkways. So I'm really excited about doing that. The fundraising has only just begun. It's relatively cheap compared to budgets for physics or for NASA, but it will take us probably about $10 million to fund 10 walkways. But the return is extraordinary, and hopefully it's a legacy to all of our children and grandchildren. In your book, you said, yes, we missed the forest from the trees. Can you kind of just elaborate on that, on how you think that is and, and why? Amongst my scientific community, I think sometimes we collect data with great eagerness, and then we may forget the big picture about saving the trees or going back to the local people and 
figuring out what their needs really are. And I think now on a global perspective, we certainly are consumed with issues like planting trees or using bamboo instead of other kinds of timber. But at the same time, we're not really focused on saving those big trees and prioritizing a lot of the conservation issues that are really and truly important for our children and grandchildren. So it is easy to get caught up in the moment, but I do think saving big trees and saving big swaths of forest and creating an economy that allows that to happen need to be the priorities for us as stewards of the forest. So any thoughts that you would like to share with my listeners? I'm excited and hopeful that people will read my book and learn a lot more about trees and gain an appreciation for how much they do to keep our planet healthy and keep us healthy. So enjoy the book, enjoy the stories, and save those big trees. I really hope you enjoyed our visit with Meg Lohman and that you will take the time to read her book, The Arbornaut. Not only because it's a wonderful story and Meg is a wonderful storyteller, but because she has a very important message for all of us. You can learn more of the efforts that Meg Lohman is making to save our forests by visiting her website, canopymeg.com. This edition of Nature Revisited is being sponsored by Osmia Bee Company, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Osmia Bee Company, providing you with everything you need to raise bees native to North America, right in your backyard. So whether you're a farmer, home gardener, or hobbyist, Saving the bees starts with you. AsmiaBee.com Please share Nature Revisited with family, friends, and colleagues. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and our website, NordenProductions.com That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions.com Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. Please join us for our next episode of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.